Well, good morning. My name is Matt, and I'm one of the pastors here, and it is great to be with you all this morning. We are coming towards the end, not quite there, but coming towards the end of a year-long series where we've been walking through the Bible together as a church community. That means that we've been reading every page of the Bible, starting in Genesis, and now we find ourselves coming to the end of the Gospels. And as we've been through these Gospels the last several weeks, this is, I think, the seventh week in the Gospels, our final time of discussing that things Jesus said. Again, Jesus said many, many things in the Gospels, but we focused on seven things. And in particular this morning, we're going to be focusing on something he declares from the cross in his most significant hour. So if you'll join me in reading um, while I'm following along on the screen, or if you'd like to move to Luke chapter 23, you can follow along there. Hear the word of the Lord. Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots and divided his garments, and the people stood by watching, but the rulers scoffed at him, saying, He saved others, let him save himself, if he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him, This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals also was hanged, who were hanged, sorry, one of the criminals who were hanged railed at him saying, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him saying, do you not fear God? Since you are under the same sentence of condemnation and we indeed justly for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, truly I say to, do, to you, today you will be with me in paradise. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Uh, my wife Becky's grandfather was not a good man. He was abusive. He was violent. He had a terrible temper. He unbelievably selfish for, for most of his life. His kids bear the scars of his kind of being him. He has a tragic story of his own, but he lived out that tragic story on his family and pretty much everyone around him. He's not a good man. But in his late 60s, he got cancer. And um, as he was coming to the final days and weeks of his life, my father-in-law, my mother-in-law, um, her dad, um, they went to see him and once again shared the gospel with him, the good news of Jesus, that Jesus saves, saves anyone. And over the course of a week, he gave his life to Christ. He repented, like verbally repented to her and to others. And there was something different about him. And just a few weeks later, he died. Now, when you hear a story like that, you probably have one to two reactions, right? You either kind of go like, praise the Lord. Like, this is pretty rare, and it really is. You get into your 60s and 70s, and people don't turn to Jesus. Too much track record in the past. People don't do that. It's like, man, that's just beautiful. I mean, God must have reached in and done something incredible. And for others of us, we might say, like, what? All the way at the end of his life? After all the wrong he'd done, all the evil, like just on his deathbed, he kind of sneaks in and, like, gets in? 
Well, we're confronted with that reality, not just in Becky's grandfather's life, but right here in the scene that we just read of Jesus on the cross. See, there's three crosses, there's three men, and, and there's really three statements that emerge from, from this particular scene. The three men are a lost thief, a repentant thief, and a living savior. And we're going to look at this passage under those three headings. A lost thief, a repentant thief, and a living savior. And so we look at this lost thief, and, and, and we, he emerges out of the middle of mockery and ridicule, right? You heard it, right? The rulers scoffed at him. The soldiers also mocked him. They're, they're being ironic and sarcastic about him. And there's this, of course, ironic and, and sarcastic inscription above his head. This is the king of the Jews. It's meant to be a joke, a mockery. Everybody's doing it. And in fact, it's actually pretty marking and somewhat even startling that, that the Jewish leaders, the religious Jewish leaders, and the, the pagan violent Romans all agree on this. They're all on the same page. This guy cannot be the Messiah. First of all, a Messiah would not be someone who would end up on a cross. For, for, the, for the Romans, like if you're a real king, you don't end up getting killed by just about anybody. It's not what a king does. You're not that weak. Salvation cannot come this way. There is no way. They're all on the same page. So Jesus is getting rejected in every direction. He's rejected in front of him by the rulers, at his feet by, by the Romans, above his head by the statement, and then right now suddenly at his side by one of the thieves. It says in verse 39, one of the criminals who were hanged railed at him saying, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. Now it's important to note that in the Roman Empire, you don't get crucified for stealing stuff. That's just not capital punishment kind of material, especially crucifixion, which is so brutal and so agonizing. So, so these guys likely had committed some kind of significant crime, probably murder on top of or in the midst of how they were robbing or stealing. These are not good dudes. They're guilty of theft Maybe through insurrection also thrown in there, but they are they're bad dudes. They robbed, they killed innocent people. But did you hear what the thief says to Jesus from the cross? He says, if, are you the Christ? Then save yourself and, and save us. Are you the Christ? He's saying that then, then I just have a simple test for you. By the way, I'll be more than glad to believe you, even be willing to serve you. But I have just a, a very simple test to determine whether you're worthy, whether you really are who you say you are. If you're the Christ, get me out of here. I'm in a predicament here. I'm about to get killed, and, and I'd love to get out of this. Are you the Christ? Save me from this. Then I'll know that you're the Christ. In essence, that's what he's telling Jesus. Jesus, if you'll be useful to me, then I'll come to you. If you'll work for me, then I'll work for you. I'm in a terrible bind. He's in a terrible bind. So if you could come through for me, that would help me gain allegiance to you, at least for a while, as long as we work together for good. 
Now, let's be honest, on average, probably millions of Americans and people across the world find themselves in some troublesome or actually dire situations at any given time. And when that happens, when that happens to us, we find ourselves usually saying something like, well, maybe I need God now. Let's see if he's really there. And if we're honest, most of us have done something like that with God, maybe even this week. I just lost my job. Lord, Lord, if, if you'll get me a good job, a better job, then, then I, I will be faithful to you. I'll redouble my efforts. If you're there and if you're real, get me out of this predicament. If you're there and if you're real, then you need to answer my prayers. I have this, pre- this pressing trial, this, this tangible need. I have this overwhelming issue. And, if, and God, I have a crystal clear picture of what you need to do to help. And if you will, well, then I'm yours. But if you won't, then I'm done with you. That won't work, right? That test doesn't work. When we come to God and say, here's how you, I'll believe that you are God as long as you agree with me about how we're going to make this right. It's not God that we want. We don't want God, we want our problems fixed. It's not really a test of God, it's an attempt to grab at God's things, at his goods. But we don't want him. It's important to see what's going on here because when we find ourselves in this place, in this if-then place, if you give me this, Lord, then I will serve you. There's two key elements at play here. There's there's the non-negotiable that comes, of course, after the if statement. And then there's the negotiable, which is, well, God himself. If you'll close this deal for me, Lord. Help me get that promotion because I closed the deal. If If you help me look good in my boss's eyes so that I can make my bonus, then I'll be generous, Lord. If you'll give me a wife or, or if you'll give us children, that then we'll give our lives to you. If you'll affirm my, 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 preferred, my preferred gender or my orientation, well, then I will follow you in all the ways that you lay out. If you'll heal me from this illness, from this pain, from this relational destruction in my life, well, then I will serve you, I, I promise change my spouse, then I'll submit to your will. If, if you bring justice to the person who's wronged me finally, well, then, then I will forgive them. If you bring my son or my daughter back, then I'll trust you. As one commentary points out, these declarations, like those of the lost thief, they, they, they betray our true affections. They tell on us. It shows our deepest commitment, what what is actually at the center of our life. It shows that God is but a means to our true, cherished end. But that's not what the second thief does. The repentant thief does not say, if you get me out of this predicament, then I will be with you. No, rather he tells Jesus, I want to be with you even if you don't take me out of this predicament. 
And when we do that, when we find ourselves saying, I want to be with you regardless of if you change this, that we begin to recognize our need to replace that non-negotiable with God himself. And loved ones, we're unlikely to make significant progress in character or our affection for the Lord until we recognize and begin to ask the Lord, Lord, will you change my affections towards you? Help me. So what are you negotiating with God right now? Like what's on the table of your conversation with God? What's the non-negotiable at the front of the if-then statement? Is it about your family? Is it about your health? What does God owe you right now? Or, or what is it? There's likely something. There's been something. It may have slid into the background for a moment or for a season. But there are things, and the way we know is when they don't come through, we get angry, we get discouraged, or we reject the Lord completely. And in so doing, of course, we come to declare, because it's not a real test, right? It's not a real test if you say to the Lord, Lord, listen, this is the plan. And if you deviate from it, well, then, then you can't be God, which implies not only do I know all things of what's best. In some ways, I just want an omnipotent helper, right? What's the, uh, the genie, right? Eternal cosmic power. Itty bitty living space, right? No, but seriously, right? That, I mean, that's perfect, right? It's like, hey, if I, Lord, this is what I need. What do you mean you're not coming through? Are we out of wishes already? The Lord says, no, no, no. We were saying it earlier. Like, we belong to him. So what are you negotiating with God? What's your non-negotiable on the table with him right now? Well, the first, thing, first thief is coming to Jesus to get something. Illustration of the tire iron, right? God is utility, useful, helpful to him. The second thief is asking simply to be with Jesus. And so let's look at this second thief, a repentant thief. Now, what's fascinating is that Matthew tells us that this is not how he started. Matthew chapter 27, verse 44 says, And the robbers, plural, who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. So, so the day on the cross began with this guy and his partner, or just the other thief, reviling Jesus together. Been a pretty horrible circumstance. They probably also had been flogged. They probably also beaten. They knew they were going to die. And they started taking it out on Jesus. But something happened. Something happened to this guy. And maybe it was the very thing that we read, that he's sitting there and, and maybe it's when the sky goes dark and something is happening or, or he hears the words out of Jesus' mouth as all the mocking is going on around him. Father, forgive them. And he can't make sense of that. He doesn't have a box, a category to put that in. 
And he starts asking himself, who is this? I mean, he probably heard rumors. Jesus was pretty popular at that point. Lots of miracles, lots of teaching about this kingdom of God coming and, and the hint of maybe he's the Messiah. But how could he be on a cross with me? But listen to him. Something happens, what we would call the, remove, the movement of the spirit upon him, regeneration of his heart, and he, he speaks. Speaks to the other, the other uh, thief when he says in verse 40, but the other rebuked him saying, listen, do you not fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? Don't you see? And we indeed justly, we deserve to be here, for we have received the due reward for our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. We deserve to be here. There's a sentence upon us, and, it, and it's beyond even it apparently, in light of what he's going to ask him, it seems like he's understanding it's beyond just this physical death. Do you not fear God? Do you not understand, oh other thief, that we are under God? We're about to either meet him and deal with the reality of what we've chosen to do. Do you not fear God? And then he turns to Jesus and he says in verse 42, and he said, Jesus, by the way, the only person to call Jesus, Jesus. Jesus, son of God, Jesus, the son of, son of David, but never just Jesus. He says, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Remember me. I want to be known by you in the future. That, that's the best I can put out there. Not get me out of this. Not like remember it. Like remember what I just said. Look, at I'm on your side now. Not, not remember them, how terrible they are when I'm here defending you. No, no. Remember me. Just me. Plain old me. Remember me. This is a picture of, of saving faith. It's one of the clearest, simplest, and maybe most straightforward. And here's what's amazing about it. This man began on the cross a reviler and condemned justly and a bad dude. And hours in, somewhere in here, he turns to Jesus and asks him to save him, to remember him. And what's shocking is that there's no clearer example of someone who cannot deserve to be saved. He can do nothing at this point but die. And Jesus says, yes. There's no works to be done, none. This little mustard seed of a faith moment in him is enough. It's enough. And what is the content of this declaration of faith? Well, he says, listen, it's pretty straightforward. This is a clear, practical gospel. I, I deserve it. I deserve what's coming to me. I deserve what I'm experiencing right now, and I deserve what I will experience before God. I deserve death. I'm rightly condemned. This is true. He makes reality his friend. As unpleasant as it is, he calls things as they are. He calls the broken, broken, the unhealthy, unhealthy, the evil, evil. So no amount of good works. He says, I'm deserving of death. Second thing he says is he's not deserving of what he's getting. 
but he's here anyway. He's experiencing condemnation nonetheless. And somehow, muted understanding likely from him, for him, that Jesus stayed. In third, he sees Jesus as a king. He says, will you remember me in your kingdom? You're a king. It's, it's written up there, and it's supposed to be sarcastic, but I think it's true. Will you remember me in your kingdom? I think you're a king, which means you rule in a kingdom, and I would like to be ruled by you in that kingdom. Will you remember me? I believe you're a king, the king. So remember me, open-handed, undeserving. A plea for mercy is all that comes from his lips. That's how you become a Christian. If you're wondering, that's how you become a Christian. It's this bad. I can't do anything about it, but he did it for me. And so now I, with a plea of mercy, I will receive it as such. And in so doing, I will receive grace. And of course, there's the offense of grace here, right? I told you a story about Becky's grandfather. It's, it can feel offensive. It's beautiful. But it's offensive, right? And some of you have been good. Like some of you have been real good. You know who you are because you were like, yeah, I have been good. You know, that's how you know if you're that person. <laughs> You've been trying real hard. And, and grace comes based on none of that. You will not walk in and go, look, Lord, at all my stuff. And he'll say, well, now you can come in. No. No, it's unmerited. It's offensive that it comes to all who ask, whosoever shall be saved. Whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Whosoever, whosoever, anybody. It was the offense of grace. But in his declaration, in his confession, there's also the offense of guilt, which candidly is more offensive today, more offensive than it used to be. Now, there were years ago, we kind of all agreed, like, hey, there's kind of a certain set of moral, you know, functional, like, this is how you be, this is how you not be. That is, well, kind of eroding. Now it's like, you be you, right? I mean, your truth is your truth, and you just kind of, you make up your thing, and if that's the case for you, well, then, yeah, you just, you know, like, you go. Don't hurt other people. It's kind of the rule, right? But, but there's an offense of guilt that comes here. And I think this is probably the hardest and most uncomfortable part of the gospel, and I think it's the, it's the most uncomfortable part of our gospel sharing, especially now, right? It's like, oh, yeah, no, no, you're a sinner. <clears throat> We're all sinners. But Jesus loves you. But it's uncomfortable. It feels like it's not allowed. I mean, and yet it's, there's such beauty in it. You pull the center out of the gospel if it's not there. Saved you for what? Why was he there? Doesn't even make sense anymore. See, if I'm saved by being just true to myself, then the only thing that I can be guilty of is not living out my true personal truth in whatever way that works for me. That's my greatest sin. That's my guilt. And so I must be true to me. 
whatever seems good, whatever is satisfying to me. But if, as God's word tells us, left to ourselves, we are fundamentally flawed. If we are fundamentally incurved to say, if we are curved in on ourselves, if left to ourselves, we are bent and twisted, rebellious against the God who made us, the God who saved us, unwilling to be submissive to the ruler of the kingdom that is the only kingdom there is, well, then there's a problem, a real problem that has to be dealt with. There's a guilt that must be atoned for, and it's real. And this thief knew it. And so his request, his plea, ridiculous as it could be. I mean, if you just think of the narrative on this, this is a ridiculous ask. He's received. It's, it's, it's unbelievable because he calls it what it is. This is what Paul says in Romans 23 about this double offense. In one verse, he says, for the wages of sin is death. It's the offense of guilt. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's the offense of grace. The gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. And that is exactly what this thief received. As ridiculous as it is, that's what he received. And he received it because the third man on the cross is a living Savior. Verse 43, Jesus says, And he said to him, Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. One of the seven things that Jesus says on the cross is pretty famous. Amen. Truly, truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. T today. I'm going to do a Steve Heimler parenthesis real quick here. Those of you who don't know what that is, it's just a parenthesis. It's like not the main thing, but I wanted to be clear about the fact that it's not the main thing, all right? Steve, you got to explain another time. So in this Steve Heimler parenthesis, I want to talk about today because one of the things that, that, you know, some of us may not have a clear understanding of is, and this is a text that's been used multiple times to talk about the reality that this guy, today Jesus is saying, you're going to be with me. You're going to be in my presence somehow. And so theologians have had to try and work out what does that mean exactly? Because the resurrection of the dead wasn't going to be today, right? So it can't be the resurrection at the end times. It can't be that. So there's, there's a, another kind of what theologians call an intermittent heaven, an intermediate heaven, an in-between space between the day where someone dies, right, and their life ends on earth and the, the day where they find themselves being raised, if they belong to Christ, being raised with new bodies, resurrected bodies. Jesus is judging the earth and a new heaven and new earth are coming. Revelations 21 22, right? That's super clear. This is clear. We die, and then Jesus is coming back, new heavens and new earth. It's going to be beautiful and exciting. And what happens in between? Well, there's a lot of questions about that, but to this, this is one of the key passages where, where, where theologians say it would appear that there's this intermediate state where you're aware, you're connected to. There's some passages like, like the rich man Lazarus where there seems to be maybe even some physical beingness about ourselves, but there's an awareness maybe, a consciousness of it. It's better than our state today, for sure. The Apostle Paul will say that. I'll read that in a minute in Philippians. That it's better that I should be with the Lord. I want to be with the Lord. It's better. All I have to say is we don't know exactly 
It's not wildly clear. There's not explicit passages that walk through that. All we know is it appears that we know. Some people have talked about sleep, by the way. One of the other ways that people look at this theologically is they talk about, you know, there's kind of like, the, like a soul sleep where you, as you die, you basically go to sleep and the next thing you know is you awaken to the presence of Christ on the judgment day and all is well for those who belong to Jesus. So that's the two kind of views. That soul sleep has way more problems theologically than the kind of present, thoughtful, aware, but not resurrected body piece. But it's all a little challenging. All I have to say is be encouraged. This is the summary of this. Like, you will see the Lord. Like, if you don't make it home today, as you pass from this life to the next, you will see the Lord. And it will be glorious. So, be at peace, parentheses closed. I have a lot of parentheses learning to do, Steve. The Lord will comfort us. Today you will be with me in paradise. What's fascinating to me is, I mean, especially as a kid when I read this, I always thought of today you will be in paradise. That's kind of how it read to me. Right? Today, you will experience all the blessings of, of not being in pain anymore. And of today, you're going to be in paradise. The word paradise is the word that's used for Eden, right? For the, the Garden of Eden. Perfection of some sort that's awesome. And so there's this, hey, today, to be in paradise. And it's true. It's a real thing. Paradise is a real thing. But the key that the weight of that sentence is not land on paradise. It lands on with me. Today you will be with me, Jesus says. That's the great and good news. What he's saying is, oh thief, you will be today with me positionally. You're going to positionally be with me in every way that's true, this is what the gospel is. This is what salvation is. At the moment we put our faith in Jesus Christ, everything that he has done is now true of us in God's eyes. So we're with him positionally. That's why Paul, the apostle, says in Romans chapter 8, verse 1, he says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There's no condemnation. Like all is well. Because you're positionally in Christ, which means that we're free from the penalty of sin as though we had already died, as if we'd already paid the full penalty ourselves. Which is why Paul says, listen, you're, you're going to get to be with me or with him in his death. Paul will say we're with him in his resurrection. We're going to be with him present tense. We are with him present tense, seated at the right hand of the Father. The moment, very moment we believe God sees us as he sees Jesus. That's the positional reality of being with him. This is what was true of the thief in that moment. It's what Jesus prays for his disciples in John chapter 17. He says, he's praying to the Lord. He says that you would loved them even as you loved me. That the moment you put your faith in God, that, that you are loved by the Father in the way that the Father loves the Son, with him positionally. That's why Jesus says in his prayer, he says, that they may be, talking about his disciples, that they may be with me 
where I am. Jesus wants us with him, not just positionally, but it's also the present personally being with him in his presence. And, and this is the, the question, and we were kicking around this the, earlier this week, that if, it's, that if it's paradise without Jesus, what would that mean to you? And no, no one says it more succinctly and, well, with more bravado than John Piper, so I'll just quote him here. He says, the critical question for our generation and for every generation is this. If you could have heaven with no sickness and with all the friends you ever had on earth and all the food that you ever liked and all the leisure activities that you ever enjoyed and all the natural beauty you ever saw and all the physical pleasures you ever tasted and no human conflict of, or any natural disaster, could you be satisfied with heaven if Christ were not there? Would heaven be satisfying to you if Christ were not there? When Jesus tells this thief, today you will be with me in paradise, the promise, the power, the beauty is not paradise, it's with me. And don't get me wrong, the promises of the new heavens and the new earth are amazing. Steve did an amazing job last week just, just opening those up for us once again and like making our hearts long for the day in which all these things are made untrue and all these things are made true in a way that we know and see and delight in and are free in. But make no mistake, the new heavens and the new earth are neither new nor good if they are void of him. Because the kingdom has begun now. And so the life of Christ that is in us now is what is inviting us to know him and delight in him and be filled in him. Today you will be with me. Do you want to be with him? That's what Jesus is inviting us to. Paul says in Philippians 1.23, he says, I'm hard pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. To be with Jesus is better. It'll make all things full and true and satisfying. And so the question this morning, especially as we look at the things like the, at, at, <laughs> at choosing and wanting, that which is secondary, that the ifs, that basically are our gods, right? That if I get this, Lord, you, then, then the invitation of Jesus from the cross is to say, today you get to be with me. And if you have me, then, then you can endure all things. If you have me, then your promotion won't make or break you. If you have me, then your marriage being a struggle and you guys learning to love each other over time in a painful way, like you can live through it. Your identity won't be defined by your sexuality, won't be defined by your gender, it won't be defined by your work or by your family. It'll be defined by me. You will be at peace because you will be with me in the midst of chaos and brokenness. And the fear I have is that some of us might think that if we could remove all the circumstances, which is the promise of paradise, then all would be well. And, and if we do not chase after him, 
who will make all things well. Now, in the midst of, and, and, and one day, then we will find ourselves disappointed. The Lord is inviting you to himself. And he does so by being the kind of savior who stays, right? No one got a front row seat like this thief, like both of these thieves. This, some of the last words that Jesus would say were between the two of them, and they got to be together. I read some poems earlier this week about this interchange and just the power and the beauty of, of, trans, of moving from life to death with the Lord and, and how sweet and how, how deep and how precious. He is this precious and he shows himself to be that precious most on the cross when he stayed. When he received this one who deserves nothing to let you know that he can receive you who deserve nothing. And to the degree in which you agree and know and rest in that, to that degree you get to be with him and experience all the goodness that comes from him today. Do you want to be with him? He's, he's inviting you. He's calling you. And he, and he calls us both from the cross, which is why we come to this table every week. Reminded that this, this is the great leveler. Becky's grandfather gets to come to this table the thief gets to come to this table. Those of you who've been righteous and good and obedient this week, you get to come to this table and be reminded that none of that is what counts. It's him, that we get to be with him in, even in these elements. He says, take my body, my blood as a remembering of what I did. And as you remember it, then you're moved by his beauty, not by his utility, not because how he works for you, because he's beautiful and worthy of praise and honor and delight and enjoyment and trust. That's what this table reminds us of. So as you come today, maybe take that non-negotiable you were thinking about and, and, and swap it around and say, Lord, if I have you, then I will trust you with this. Let's pray. Father, how we love you. You had to come for us. We could not come to you. And you didn't just come a part of the way, you came all the way to meet us, to die for us. And to show us even with this thief that it must be you who pursues and who loves and who rescues. And so this morning as we come, Lord, we want to lay at your feet all that is yours, our very lives. We hold nothing back and we trust you. We trust you because of what you've done and we remember it and we anticipate the day where we will get to drink and eat with you in the kingdom of heaven. And that day will be glorious. Even now, come Lord Jesus. We pray all these things in the name of Christ, our Savior and our Lord. Amen. If you'll come forward to receive the elements at this time.